the grace of the Lord will be with us. St. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and anti-deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than to Christ. And for our time this afternoon, we'll consider these two verses. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is head over all, ruler, or rather, over all, rule and authority. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And now to the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Last time we were together, we considered verse 10 of Colossians chapter 2. I hope that for those who weren't able to be here, um, and even for those who are here, uh, you go back and listen, or that it was of some great encouragement for you. As again, St. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Last time we were together, saints, we considered these verses and we came to the conclusion Paul is not talking about philosophy in general, but rather vain philosophy specifically. And we noted that what we have in Revelation is not to be absent and very distant from what we deal with in our current day. We live in a day, as many of you know, that is uh, opposed to religious, Christian, and even, generally speaking, theistic moral values. We cannot say that this used to be a Christian uh, America, but we can say at least that it was a theistic America. That there is an understanding of a law that was transcendental, that was universal, that was beyond them, that they must adhere to. But now what we have is vain philosophy, and we named three that are in the current day. The philosophy of same-sex attraction, the philosophy of abortion, and of transgenderism. And what we saw is that at the root of these grave, grave sins, and the thinking is that it's a divorce from reality. A divorce from reality. Okay? Um, that same-sex attraction and the issue there is that they don't live in accordance with which they were made. Same with transgenderism and the same thing, loosely speaking, with those who say that the women has the right to choose whether or not they want to keep their child. And what we saw is that at the moment of conception, the one that's in her womb is a human being. Now, saints of God, we're going to move from natural theology to supernatural theology. And here, Saint Paul, I mean, if we, if we were, if we were, if, if we were looking at a building and the title, or rather, um, at the very front, it said Christology. We will now enter into the building and go up a few floors. And go up a few floors. Because St. Paul tells us, why should we trust the words of Christ? Why should we not look to vain philosophy? Why should we trust what Christ has infused into our souls, whereby our minds 
have have such um, thoughts about God and who He is to where we love Him. You see, people can have thoughts about God. But that doesn't translate over to the will for them to love. That's what God has done for you, congregation. God has given you right thoughts about God in order for you to respond in such a way where you live and love him correctly. Why should we trust Christ over and above vain philosophy? He says in verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is why. That is why. That is why. Someone was asked you, why are you a Christian? Because the God-man died for me. The God-man lived for me. The God-man rose for me. Because the words of Christ, saints of God, the words here in the word of God, but also we can say the words that have been given to men that are not inspired, nevertheless they are general revelation from God, right? That is true wisdom. That the wisdom that comes from God uh, is the words and the wisdom of, or rather the words and wisdom that come from Christ, are the words and wisdom that come from God. Here, saints of God, in verse uh, 9, and also verse 10, specifically verse 9, St. Paul dashed to pieces heresy after heresy that denies the true humanity and true divinity in the one Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about the person of Christ congregation, we most always keep at the forefront of our minds this statement from St. Paul, he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And here's what we keep at the forefront of our minds concerning Christ. And one Lord Jesus Christ. And one Lord Jesus Christ. Confession of St. Paul, one Lord Jesus Christ. It was the centerpiece for the early church, for many of the church fathers. When they consider the person of Christ, that is to say, whatever we say about the two-ness of Christ, that is to say, whatever we say about the two natures of Christ, the, the duality of Christ, we must always keep from, or rather never lose, this confession of St. Paul, that we are still speaking of the one Lord, Jesus Christ. The one Lord, Jesus Christ. And here St. Paul speaks of the oneness of Christ in a most unique way. Again, he says, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, some might say, well, what's the big deal with this statement here? Or rather, Paul, what's the big deal of the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form? What's the big deal? Why is that a big issue? Why should that be in the word of God? And why ought you be telling me this? Some may say, because God dwells in all things. God dwells in all things. He is present to all things. So, what's the big deal about God dwelling in bodily form? And while it is true that God is present to all things, there is a unique way that God, specifically the eternal Son, is present in bodily form. Congregation, when we consider God's presence, and I hope that this is much enlightening for you, and this is actually going to, going to, uh, um, trans over, uh, or rather relate nicely to what Pastor Antonio said this morning, when we think about God's presence, God's presence, is God present everywhere? Of course he is. Of course he is. But is God present to all things? Of course he is. Of course he is. 
When theologians speak of God's presence, they speak of it in a multitude of ways. Traditionally, theologians have spoke of God's presence in three ways. We could even say four ways. God is present by essence. God is present by presence. God is present by power. And God is present by grace. Essence, presence, power, and grace. When we say that God is present in all things by essence, what we simply mean is that because all things have being, because all things exist, they have being, right? You have being, the chair that you sit on have, has, has being, right? It exists. God, therefore, is present because all things come from him. All things, saints of God, are merely a donation from him. Because since God has the fullness of being, anything that has being, right, carries some sort of likeness to God by the sheer fact that it exists, right? St. Thomas says, God is said to be in all things by essence. And here is a very, um, well, I'll get to it, by essence, not indeed by the essence of things themselves, as if he were of their essence. Now, that might be of great importance for many of us, right? Because although we say that God is present to all things, like God is present to a chair, he is present to um, all things that exist. You might think, well, wait a minute then. Should we then worship the chair? Should we then worship things that have being? Is God... In those things, in the same way in which, the same manner in which, or rather, in the way in which we we are to express ourselves and devote worship to these things? Thomas says, no, God is not in them with respect to their essence. Okay? But by his own essence, because his substance is present to all things as the cause of their being. Simply put again, since God has the is the fullness of being, and since things have being, all things that have being come from God. Therefore, God is present to whatever and all things that have being by his essence. Okay. Secondly, God is present by his presence. He is present by his presence. That is to say, since God, or rather, since all things have being from God, wherever a thing is in a place, God is said to be. By his presence. Stay with me here. These are a little bit naughty arguments, especially for the time of the day. Thank the Lord that we didn't bring any heavy food. God is present to things and to all things that are in a particular place. Again, Thomas says, things placed are in a place. So, for instance, this is a place, a spatial place. We put chairs, we put tables, we put all sorts of things into a specific place, right? In so much as they feel a place. So, for example, we have chairs that are feeling this place. If the chairs are removed, it would be an empty place. Right? We put things in a place, and these things fill the place. And God fills every place. Not indeed like a body. So God is not filling a place like, like a body is, right? Bodies fill places up, even if there's one body. Like a body, for a body is said to fill a place in so much as it excludes the co-presence of another body. So, 
again, you can have an empty room. If there's one body there, then that one body's filling the place. Still, we can say that. Whereas by God being in a place, others are not thereby excluded from it. Indeed, by the very fact that he gives being to the things that fill every place, he himself fills every place. That's the answer there. It's because God gives being to every place, and everything that we put in a, a place, God is said to fill the place. Example, your chair, right, has being. Well, but that chair has being only because it comes from God, primarily, right? And because the chair has being, we can say that God is present. Because God is, we can say God is present. Also, God is present by his power. That is to say, God is present to all things that exist as one who is personally causing them to be. So God doesn't only just cause you to be, but also causes you to move. God, God allows the chair, us humans, to exist, specifically us humans, to have motion. So yes, you think that we move by some freedom of ours, and while we do... The primary reason why, why Maria is able to shake her head or nod her head, uh, while why um, uh, uh, Brother Isaac is able to, to scratch his arm, the motion that he's giving up is because of God. Because of God, primarily, first and foremost. Okay. This presence, congregation, it even extends to sinners, and this is what gets into a little bit. Pastor Antonio's sermon this morning is God present to sinners. Is God present to the souls in hell? Is God present to fallen angels? We have to say yes. We have to say yes. Now, of course, we make distinctions on the mode of presence, whether that's good or bad. But the sheer fact that sinners, fallen angels, and souls in hell have being, God is present. God is present. One theologian gives a nice summary of this. He says, no creature... No matter how uninterested in the sacred doctrine or hostile to it, can truly escape God in its ontological roots. Since God sustains all things and being as creator of their existence, that's to say, when a believer, rather, when someone does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and even, even, even more fundamentally that God exists, they are denying something that's fundamentally real they're denying their own ontological roots it's like someone denying their mother and father right but in a more more fundamental level that they're denying the very one that they come from also the one who gives them being puts them in being takes them out of being lastly the lord is present by grace the lord is present by grace and this special presence of God in the souls of believers is um, is the grace that God God gives to those who believe upon Lord Jesus Christ. This form of presence should not be undermined, congregation. Please don't undermine this. I mean, this is not something that we we know it, but but please cherish this mode of presence that God is present to you in a unique way that He's not present to anything else in this world, and that is by grace. This form of presence is much higher and closer than any form or how God is present in all things. For while it is true, you might say, well, what's the big deal? What's the difference? God is present to all things. 
What's the difference? But you're saying that there's a unique and special way that he's present to me as a believer. What's the difference? While all, while God is present to all things, only God's presence by grace in the souls of believers actually changes us. You see, God is present to a rock, right? But a rock cannot become like God. God is present to your chair, but the chair cannot become like God. God is present to animals, but an animal cannot become like God. God is present to us, and by grace, he's present in such a way where he indwells us so that we can be like him. There's a uniqueness. So when we talk about, when we talk about grace, yes, it's divine favor, but also, also, it's a participation in God's very own being. One theologian says, grace is the gift of divine life in which spiritual creatures are called to participate. When human beings begin to know God by grace, they are illuminated intellectually by faith and are moved freely toward union with God by hope and love and the will. As a consequence, they begin they begin to possess God mystically, mysteriously, even imperfectly, and this process culminates in the beatific vision in which the human person is given to see God by immediate intellectual vision and so also possess God by a love that can never fail or be diminished. That is to say, the very when God indwells you and is and when 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 God indwells you by grace, saints of God, here's the beauty. When we get to heaven, when we see God upon death, we will see and we will know the very one who has lived in the very depths of our soul while on earth. He will be unveiled to us where we don't know him through a glass darkly, but through the clearest of sight we can know him. That is what grace does. It allows us to participate in the very being of God to where we know God and we love God the way that we ought to. So then back to our text, when St. Paul says that the fullness of deity dwells bodily, does he mean then that the eternal Son is present in human form in the same way that he's present in all things by his essence, presence, power, or grace? Is that what he means? Again, the argument is, if you stay with me, that since God is present to all things, is St. Paul saying that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in the same way that God is present to a chair or to us? Is it like that? And the answer, of course, in bold letters is no. No. Again, Thomas Aquinas says, and here Thomas will show how God dwelling bodily is far superior to how he dwells everywhere else. He says, the fullness of deity does not dwell in them. That is to say, the fullness of deity does not dwell in the chair. The fullness of deity does not dwell in us, strictly speaking. He says, because he is not there according to a substance. God is not in the chair, whereby making the chair God. Again, he is in holy minds by activity, minds which attain God by love and knowledge, and thus God is in them by grace, but not bodily. God indwells us by grace. There's a medium there between us and God. But according to the effect of grace, 
And he is not there in his fullness, but only by some limited effects. But God is present in Christ bodily. God is present in Christ bodily. That is to say, when the eternal Son of God became man, God was made present in his creation in a way that's far more perfect, far more superior than he is by his essence, presence, and power, but also by grace in the souls of believers. And this presence is effectuated by the means of what's called the hypostatic union, the union of God and man, whereby God the Son becomes man and makes himself personally known in a human nature and by means of his human life, death, and resurrection. St. Paul tells us, or rather St. John in 1 John 1.4, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God, the eternal Son, became man. What that means, saints, is that God is present in human form. God is present in human form. And I say is because he still is. The eternal Son did not remove his humanity upon ascension, only to pick it back up when he returns. But he's still the God-man. So we can say then, in a very ABC type of way, sorry, if we were to touch the uh, Jesus Christ, we were touching the human hand of God. If we were to look at Jesus Christ, we would be looking at the human face of God. If we were to see Jesus walking in Jerusalem, we would see the eternal Son of God walking in a human manner. When Jesus Christ dies, it is the eternal Son of God who suffers and dies in a human manner or in his human nature. And so when St. Paul says that the fullness of deity dwells bodily, what he's essentially saying is the eternal Son of God now subsists as man. As man. Or we can say the eternal son united a human nature to himself so that what was assumed, the human nature, now becomes one with his person. So in Jesus Christ then, we don't have two subjects, two who's, or two persons. That's the error, heresy of Nestorianism. We don't have a divine person and a human person. But rather, we have a divine person with a divine nature who now subsists in a human nature. That's what we have. That's the orthodox teaching. So we can truly say then, we can truly say and really say God is truly man and this man is truly God. This, saints, although deeply mysterious and for many of us very, very hard, is important for us to affirm. I was speaking to Pastor Antonio and Brother Deacon Scott. And be honest with you, for the whole time I was talking, or rather from, from, from when Pastor Antonio ended his sermon to, to when I spoke to them, I was trying to figure out a way in which this makes sense on a practical, salvific level. But if, I think I, I, I kind of hit it in the head at that very moment. If we have two persons, if we have a human, if we have a human person that's Christ and a divine person that's Christ, then who in the world dies for us? 
And who in the world lives for us? Well, it only is the human person, right? But the issue, though, is that human person that's on the cross, no matter how glorious and full of grace he is and has, cannot save us for all eternity. This is why we say, and if you were there earlier in Sabbath school, all of Christ's acts are the acts of the God-man. They're theandric. They're acts of the God-man. So as, as, as metaphysically dense as this is, this is also, also greatly, greatly um, 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 appropriate and in regard with our salvation, saints. It's important for us to affirm. Because heresy doesn't die. Heresy hasn't died. Heresy, Arianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, all of them, they are still, all the great Christological heresies, they're still present. They're still present. And we need to know who we are speaking of when we consider our Christ. Because when theologians spoke of the union of God and man, they spoke of this union as what's called an accidental union. An accident is really just an Aristotelian term. Here we'll use philosophy in the service of theology. Simply put is this. The shirt that you wear is an accident to you. The car seat that you put in your car is an accident. That is to say this. Your shirt is not essential to who you are. It gives you being, that is to say, you go from being, or rather I go from being Isaiah wearing a blue checkered shirt. I take it off. I am now Isaiah with not a blue checkered shirt. But it's not essential to me, right? Hair color, hair length, eye color, um, height, weight is not essential to your humanity. You can gain, lose, um, all, the, all that without losing your humanity. And so when heretics thought about the union of God and man, what they thought about is this, that the eternal son assumes a human nature and puts it on himself in the same manner in which we put on coats or we put on a shirt. What's the problem with that? You still have two subjects. You still have, you still have, right, something that's not one. And where theologians come along and they say, the union of God and man is not an accidental union. The human nature is in union with the divine word, not as, as a coat is in union with you. But rather, it's a substantial union. Substantial union. Jesus, then, is one concrete subject. He is one concrete reality. Christ is the eternal Son who became man to reveal himself to us in a human way. Christ, then, or rather we can say Christ is the person of the Word who expresses his identity in a human manner, by his thoughts, his desires, his actions, his words, and ultimately by his human suffering. We have to ask then, why does he do all this, saints? Many reasons. But in the realm of salvation, not in the realm of God with respect to his nature, because we know that God sends his son to reveal his goodness, but in the realm of salvation, God becomes man so that we can share in God's divine life. 
We can also say, or we rather, we can say God dwells in bodily form so that God can dwell in us by grace. He can dwell in us by grace. In this verse, we also see something of the unchanging nature of God, or rather of the eternal Son we assume flesh. I'll just speak of this quickly because I've gotten many questions on this. St. Paul says that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Just in case we think that when the eternal Son of God assumes human flesh, there was some sort of lost divestment of himself in order for him to become human, St. Paul makes it clear that there was no loss in the eternal Son when he became man. There is loss for us when we go from something to something else, or when we have to assume something. But we'll, St. Paul here dashes to pieces any notion that the eternal son had to lose any divine attributes, divine prerogatives, anything of who he is, in order for him to become human and assume a human nature. Because think of who our God is. Since God is the fullness of being, and he cannot in himself, right? He doesn't have any, there's no sort of way in which he can be reduced to anything less than who he is, right? So if we say something like God is love, well, God can't be less loving, and he can't be more loving. He's perfectly loving. If there is no way in which God can be reduced in any sort of way, then we can't say then, then God had to remove something of himself. Even, even glory, I mean, people, people will say, well, he, had, he divested himself of his glory. Well, divesting himself of his glory and veiling glory are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And St. Paul reminds us and dashes to pieces, error after error, that say, even, even as much as people think it preaches, Look what God did. The eternal Son of God lost something in order for you to gain something. No. Why can't the eternal Son remain who he is while also bringing you who don't, who don't have what he has up to what he has? That preaches. That preaches more. That preaches more. That God does not lose his fullness, but rather his fullness dwells in bodily form. In addition to Christ being perfect in and of himself, we also see in verse 10, he also brings us the past that we are complete through him. In closing, or rather toward closing, in verse 10, and in him you have been made complete. And in him you have been made complete. This completion that Paul speaks of is in regards to our salvation. Simply put, in Christ. We have everything we need. In Jesus Christ, we have everything we need. And again, this goes back to who Christ is and his person. We have everything we need because, first and foremost, the one whom we get everything from is God, made man for us. Now, there's two ways that we are completing Christ. I had about five ways. Well, maybe we touched on those another time. The first way is from we are complete in Christ by way of wisdom and saving knowledge. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 8:24. Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Here is Christ is saying that I am, right? The same I am that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He's identifying himself as God. If you don't believe essentially that Jesus Christ is God, then you will die in your sins. Saints, the greatest wisdom that one can have is not merely that God exists. We don't praise people, and we shouldn't praise people for acknowledging the existence of God. But rather, the greatest wisdom that one can have is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the world to save sinners. And if you believe in Christ, you will be saved. That is the greatest wisdom. And living in light of that, living in light of that is true wisdom. By grace, saints of God, we've been given the gift of wisdom. Hear me now. By grace, you've been given the gift of wisdom. In other words, by grace, you've been given something that your friends don't have. Now, um, wonderful Leah, who asked the best questions, she said, and we aren't to liken this gift of wisdom and faith like when we get a new toy. Or like, and I alluded to, like when we get a new television. Because those things wear off. Very astute of, of, of Leah. We ought to think of it that way. These things are, these gifts don't wear off. They don't lose their, 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 their vastness and, and their treasury. And this gift of wisdom saints is nothing else but the eternal son into the souls of believers. That's the gift of wisdom. In which the eternal son into the souls of the believer raises your minds to believe supernatural truths. That's what he does. That's the gift of wisdom. For you to rise above philosophy, vain philosophy, to what is supernatural. We believe supernatural truths, do we not? We believe that there was a virgin who gave birth. We believe on the third day someone rose again, but to never die again. We believe in some pretty, pretty amazing things. And saints of God, we can say that we are the fruit. That you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are the fruit that was spoken of in the Gospel of John. You're that fruit. You're the ones that Christ was speaking of. Jesus says in John 12:46, I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. You are the fruit of such proclamation. <laughs> that you will not live in darkness, but you will have light. Because of Adam's sin, we know that our minds are darkened and ignorant of God's truth. We are not wise and we do not do what God commands. Think of all the, the lies that the world tells the congregation. Without the Son indwelling us. Without the Holy Trinity indwelling us, without the gift of wisdom and faith, how would you know what's false and what's true? Without the Holy Trinity indwelling us, how would we know what is and what is not vain philosophy? But thanks to God, to the believer, here St. Paul says, in Christ, we have such a completeness Specifically in knowledge that we don't lack anything. 
In fact, St. Paul here, or rather these words here, are really just a testimony of St. Paul's own life. And you, sometimes you, when we read St. Paul, you, he's actually living what he's, what he's writing. Yes, inspired by the word of God, but used as an instrument, right? Used as an instrument of the Holy Spirit. Because remember what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Saints of God, as your pastor, take advantage of the gift of faith that God has given you. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't go out and read and know other things. If you're into um, the political world, do your thing. If you're into philosophy, do your thing. If you're into all the different sciences, that's fine. But don't turn those things that you have liberty to know into things that are a waste of time. That's what many Christians do. They turn things that they have the liberty to know into a waste of time. And what I mean by that is the things that they turn or rather that they want to know supersedes the very gift that God has enabled them to know, which is him, which is him. So don't neglect the gift of faith and wisdom. Don't neglect the very gift of enlightenment that God has given to you. And lastly, we are complete in Christ by way of righteousness. We are complete in Christ by way of righteousness. And Adam, infected head to foot with sin, we are guilty sinners before God. Left to our sin, we have no way of standing before God and Him accept us. Left to our sin, we have no way of standing before God again. And Him accept us. And here's the great news of the gospel congregation. Is that for those who believe in Jesus Christ, that legal status of guilty before God is overturned to a status of righteous. That when there was no way in which we could stand innocent and acceptable before God, the eternal Son was made man and by His perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ, and only in Him do we stand holy and complete before the Father. Young people, only in Jesus Christ and not your own works. Middle-aged people, old people, if you've been in saved for five years, one year, a hundred years, only in Jesus Christ do you stand complete before the Father. As Romans 5, 7 through 19 tells us, for if by the one offense, the one death reigned the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life with the one Jesus Christ? So then, as through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind. So also through the one act of righteousness, the result was justification and of life to all mankind. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, through also the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Jesus Christ counsels out the disobedience, the unrighteousness, the guilty verdict and status he counsels out, as Pastor Antonio alluded to this morning, death itself destroys it, right? And we receive the very opposite 
of what Adam brought to us. Saints of God, the great comfort of the gospel is that which you could never earn and that which you could never be. You are truly and completely in Christ. That's the great news of the gospel. That which you could never earn, no matter how much grace you have, and that which you could never be, you are truly and completely in Christ. You are righteous in the sight of God. You are righteous in the sight of God. We can also speak of many ways also. We are completing Christ by your sanctification. It is Christ who gives us the ability to live the divine life that we live now. We can speak about Christ being for us complete with regard to the end of salvation. That is to say, the destination, the goal, which is to see God face to face, to to enter heaven itself, and to live there for all eternity, happily blessed. But here, in these two verses, St. Paul weaves together nicely high Christology of of who Christ is in his being and how it relates to us now as believers in Jesus Christ. That now, saints of God, we believe in this one who is one person with two natures who lived, died, and rose. And in light of that, we're complete. We're complete. You're complete, saints of God. You're complete in Jesus Christ. Next, St. Paul will now tell us from verses 11 on how complete we are in him. And I just want to read these verses to you in closing. And in him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Having counseled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which is hostile to us, and he has taken it out of of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let's pray.